Tonight's talk is on dukkha. The Buddha described three doorways to understanding the world, to knowing reality as it is. These are three doorways that can liberate the heart and the mind. The words in Pali for these three doorways are dukkha, anicca, and anatta. Traditionally, these words are translated, dukkha is translated usually as suffering. Anicca is translated usually as impermanence. And anatta is usually translated as no self. What we will see when we explore these three characteristics of reality is that these translations are somewhat limited in English. And so um, I'm going to use the Pali word because I find that uh, we can understand more of the nuances of what these words mean by using the Pali. We human beings tend not to see so clearly the true nature of life. We tend to see life on a surface level and through uh, the conceptual realm, and we, in this way, don't see clearly how life is. The three characteristics of dukkha, anicca, and anatta are descriptions of life's universal laws. The word vipassana means to see clearly. The whole purpose of practice is to see these three characteristics deeply enough that we liberate ourselves from delusion and we liberate ourselves from the suffering that comes out of this delusion. So we learn about these three characteristics so deeply that we learn how to live with harmony with life as it is. We learn how to live with peace. These three characteristics are very interconnected. Understanding one, we understand all three. They weave together. But we also often find that with one of them, we connect more than with the others. It's our own doorway into the truth. It's said at the moment of enlightenment that we choose one of these three doorways as our entry into the unconditioned. So that's how powerful these three characteristics are. I'd like to start tonight with dukkha, one of my favorite topics. And on other nights, we will get to the other two. The Buddha said, I teach one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. So the understanding of dukkha is very central to the Buddha's teachings. As I said, this word dukkha is often translated as suffering, but there are other meanings of it, other translations that are sometimes used. Unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness, discontent, In his very first discourse that he gave after his enlightenment, he detailed um, very distinctly what he meant by suffering. 
so I'm going to read it to you. Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and despair are suffering. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality, body, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, as possessions of myself, is suffering. You can already see in this description of suffering how the three characteristics are all um, included. The characteristics of suffering, um, impermanence, change, and no self are all included in that definition. So Buddhism sometimes gets a bad rap because of its emphasis on the problem of suffering. People even say it's a depressing religion. Ugh, why would we want to talk about suffering. What I say is, how can we deal with the problem if we won't face it? We suffer more by trying to deny the reality of suffering. Facing life as it is, is the way out of suffering. For me, it was a tremendous relief to hear these teachings, to hear it put so plainly, so straightforward. The first time that I read about Buddhism, I was 23 years old, and I was living in Nicaragua at the time. And I read Stephen Levine's A Gradual Awakening. And it talked about suffering and why we suffer. And I was just so happy. I was like, oh, okay, somebody's really telling it like it is. What I'd like to do is look uh, um, at some of these aspects of suffering. There's several different kinds of suffering that the Buddha talks about. The first one is suffering as we conventionally think of it, um, aches and pains in the body and mental suffering. So part of suffering is dealing with these bodies that malfunction at times, that get sick, that get old, and die. Dukkha also includes dealing with these minds, the turbulent minds that in the best of times just may annoy us and in the worst of times can incapacitate us. So dukkha as sorrow, lamentation, and despair. The next part of the equation is not how we typically think about suffering, but is actually more to the point of how the Buddha talked about suffering. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant. Not getting what one wishes. Life sometimes just doesn't go the way that we want it to. We're separated from what we like and we have to tolerate what we don't like. The Rolling Stones stated it simply, you can't always get what you want. This is dukkha. Last um, February... I went on a retreat in Burma, and actually Annie and Patricia and uh, Debbie were all there with me. And we were practicing in this very beautiful part of Burma called the Sagain Hills. It's an area that's just steeped in, in a religious tradition of hundreds of years. And 
it's all um, it's all along the valley of the Irrawaddy River, and in this area, this small area, there's said to be like seven to eight hundred pagodas and monasteries. It's just a um, very beautiful place. And when we practice there, we each got our own little cottage or cabin. They're called kutis in um, Burma, and we used to compare our kutis. I had um, this kuti on this ridge that was um, up above the river. just had this gorgeous view up and down the river, all these golden spires of pagodas. Um, It's a very beautiful view. Also, because it was so exposed, I didn't have any insects or other um, animals. Um, So I was comfortable in that way. However, because it was very exposed, it was very sunny and very hot. And because it was very exposed, it was very noisy. I would hear um, everything going down, on down below in the village and the monastery. <clears throat> and, um, and lots of smoke would come up from the fires and everything. Patricia had this really nice little cootie stuck back in this um, little ravine. And it was quiet. You know, the noise didn't make it back there. And um, cool. It was shaded all day. So she was much cooler than I was. However, Patricia was bitten by many bugs and (laughs) had other visitors such as a snake and um, things of that variety. (laughs) And so we would kind of compare our cooties, you know, at times, and we go, you know what, there's not a perfect cootie. That's, you know, the conclusion that we'd come to. This is um, what the Buddha meant. There's no perfect circumstances. Sometimes I even use that like as a little mantra. There's not a perfect cootie. (laughs) It just reminds us, you know, that you can't get it perfect. And I'm sure um, sometimes uh, this happens in the hall. You know, oh, my seat's good for this reason. My seat's not good for that reason. Or the room you have, my room's good for this reason. My room's not good for that reason. You know, we we go around looking for um, the perfect cootie. And it doesn't exist. That's dukkha. So this translation of um, dukkha as unsatisfactoriness kind of points to this fact that we aren't going to find the, the perfect kuti, that, that trying to uh, find um, happiness through controlling the environment around us, through, you know, having pleasant experiences and um, isn't going to satisfy us, that it's not going to work, that things change. Sometimes this is called the dukkha of change, that you can't control life, that things change. So that's that second kind of dukkha. And then there's a third kind of dukkha. This is the existential kind of suffering, just the suffering of having a body and a mind and the um, constant impact of sense impressions and the um, constant movement of mind, and the fact that, for example, it takes so much work just to care for this body, you know, what you have to go through, and in a day just keep this um, machine running, kind of existential kind of dukkha of having a human body and mind. So people have different reactions to hearing about dukkha. Uh, We live in a culture that I think has taken denial of um, suffering to just a new level. Um, I came across a quote recently. It said, America, a country where everything is done to prove life isn't tragic. 
And um, I think uh, we work really hard at that. We hide people away. We, we believe that insurance will somehow protect us uh, from, from things. We have lawsuits, which are, um, you know, so many lawsuits, which are really a denial of our vulnerability, you know, that somebody must be to blame if something bad happens or if dukkha happens. You can see this, too, interestingly, in commercials. I was watching TV uh, once a while ago, and I saw this, this um, commercial, and it was for some kind of um, aspirin-like thing. And they, they, I was so struck by the, what they said that I wrote it down. It was, how much tolerance do I have for pain? Zero tolerance. <laughs> Say no to pain. <laughs> That's just, that's just, that's our culture, right? <laughs> I, I was like, oh my God, the poor person, zero dollars, you're in trouble. <laughs> and then I heard of this thing recently. Um, there's this movement called CR for cal- cal- calorie restriction. And the idea is to limit how much one eats because then um, uh, you can control aging, supposedly, that way. And one, one woman said that this... Um, that the purpose was this, was this until we eradicate the greatest cause of death, aging. <laughs> we can, most of us can kind of clearly see the humor in that, but um, we all have our own ways of denying it. You know, it might be subtler. I'm very aware of the fact that when I look in the mirror, I don't think I see myself as I look now. I mean, I really think I see myself as I looked like 10 or 15 years ago. It's amazing that I can do that, you know? I mean, that's the level of denial of aging. Or recently, I I took my goddaughter on a trip for her um, graduation from high school, and I got the pictures back, and um, I looked at them and was like, why is the hair so white? You know, it's like, because my hair, I'm getting white hairs, you know? But it was like, it's like, who is that person? That's not me, is it? You know? And so we all, I think, you know, it's like deeply ingrained, this, this denial of aging, that we're all getting old. Or, or my body, it doesn't work as well as it used to, you know? And so we somehow have this idea in this culture that our bodies should work perfectly until the moment we keel over, you know? And if they don't, there's something wrong with us or the medicine we're taking rather than the fact that that's, that's life. Or another myth that we have, I think cultural myth, that's a denial of dukkha, is uh, we think that if we are suffering at some personal deficiency, you know, or that if we get um, some illness, that somehow we did something to make that happen. You know, the Buddha said uh, dukkha happens. It's just part of life. It's inherent in human existence. I think our societal denial of the reality of life has actually contributes to a lot of the problems that we have. You know, the um, incident of anxiety and depression is definitely on the rise in this country, and the frantic pace that we that we uh, move at to avoid reality, and the um, increase in mind-numbing stimulation and entertainment. It seems clear that we're on the wrong path, culturally. A positive side of um, facing this issue of suffering is that it inspires us 
the search and inspires us to undertake a spiritual practice. Many of you are probably here inspired by suffering. It motivates us to look for answers. It's said that the Buddha was um, born into a princely, a princely family and that at the time of his birth there was a prophecy he would become either a great spiritual leader or um, a, a, a great king. And his father wanted him to become a king. And so one way he tried to make this happen was to hide suffering from him, to not let him see uh, sickness, old age, death, either in people or even, um, it's said, even in the, in the blossoms in the garden, that the gardeners would have to pick off the dead blossoms in the morning before the prince was awake so that he wouldn't see decay. And it said that the Buddha got very curious and uh, left the palace grounds on several occasions. And on these occasions, he saw uh, a uh, sick person, an old person, and a dying person. And that seeing these people is what inspired him to go on a spiritual search and become a great spiritual leader. It, it, it inspired him to ask questions. You know, why do we suffer and the fourth person he saw was um, a renunciate, and that gave him the inspiration to, do, to leave and go on a spiritual search. Sometimes I think that um, this country and even the Western world is, is like the prince's palace. And so we have an invitation with um, connecting with suffering to embrace all of life instead of to hide um, closed off behind palace doors. The Buddha said that if we um, want to free ourselves from suffering, we have to understand it very intimately. It's not our usual stance. Our usual stance is if we want to free ourselves of suffering, let's get rid of it. So it's kind of paradoxical. How do we find freedom from suffering through it? Ajahn Chah is this um, jolly Thai, or was this jolly Thai uh, Buddhist master, and uh, he had kind of a no punches held. How do you say that? He, you know, he just pretty loved to uh, state things very frankly. And here's what he had to say about engaging with our suffering. So there's a lot of suffering in practice, but if you don't get to know your own suffering, you won't understand the noble truth of suffering. To understand suffering, to kill it off, you first have to encounter it. If you want to shoot a bird but don't go out and find it, how can you ever shoot it? Suffering, that's what the Buddha taught about. If you refuse to experience suffering, you won't see it. If you don't see suffering, you won't understand it. If you don't understand suffering, you won't be able to get rid of it. Now, people don't want to see suffering. They don't want to experience it. If they suffer here, they run over there. They drag their suffering around with them, but they never kill it. They don't contemplate or investigate it. As long as you remain ignorant wherever you go, you'll find suffering. If you board an airplane to fly away from it, it will board the airplane with you. If you dive underwater, it will dive in with you. Suffering lies within us, but we don't understand that. 
If it lies within us, where can we run to escape it? You must look into this intently until you're beyond doubt. You must dare to practice. So in practice, we start to see that there is more suffering in resisting dukkha than there is in facing the truth of it. We start to see that there's a resting place in being okay with the fact that dukkha happens and that we can deal with it. We can't avoid pain, but we can learn to lessen our resistance to it, which is the suffering we can do something about. It's really about saying yes to all of life, and even that step makes it workable. Last year when we went on this retreat to Burma, before, um, before going on this retreat, in some ways I had found that retreats in this country had become a bit too easy for me, and I felt like I wanted a, a real challenge for my practice. And it's a little bit like that first night the guy who went to the cave with the cold and the bird doo-doo and all. (laughs) It's not that extreme, but a little bit that idea of, you know, um, we don't just practice to be comfortable, we practice because we want freedom. So I knew for me that going to Burma, I hadn't been to the third world for a number of years, and I knew that it wasn't going to be easy. I'm one of these people with a very sensitive body, and um, uh, I get... um, my, I, I can experience a lot of um, fatigue and difficulty with my body when it's stressed too much. And so I knew that uh, being in the third world, that, that could happen. But I, I, I really wanted to just challenge myself and see what I could learn. So we went to um, the monastery in Chazwa. And um, the first day, it became very clear that the conditions weren't exactly easy. Uh, there, the air was very uh, smoky with the fires from the town. Everybody, a lot of most people cooked on on fire wood fires, and um, it was during the dry season, so the air had a lot of dust in it, and I suffer a little bit from asthma. So I, I started to really get afraid that I wasn't going to be able to breathe. And then the room where we um, were having our teachings had just been painted with oil-based um, paints on the concrete floor, which really kind of makes my nervous system go nuts. And so I, 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 I uh, started to panic. And also, I, I didn't have, I, you know, I had plane tickets out, but it took me five planes to get there. And so I knew that to change five planes was going to be pretty hard, that I was stuck. So I started to experience a lot of panic. And I said to myself, you know what? If panic is what... I need to learn about, and if that's what's going to be coming up in my practice, the the whole time I'm here, that's okay. I decided to just accept and open to whatever it was that came up. Eventually, panic got actually quite interesting. And those of you who've experienced panic, it's, um, it's probably close to one of the most unpleasant things you can experience. I got interested in it. You know, I... I explored it deeply. It came and went, eventually. 
And this is what I mean about saying yes to all of life, you know, that we sit down, we practice, and we say yes to whatever dukkha is offered to us. We find that as we work with our dukkha, we soften and we start to cultivate compassion for ourselves. And we start to feel connected with others as we understand that all beings suffer in some way. It's like we touch the depth of our humanity through connecting with our suffering. And this touching the depth of our humanity opens our hearts. Now, opening the heart isn't easy. Now, all of us, to some degree, have developed um, layers of protectiveness as a way to deal with life. And so opening the heart means that we're peeling these layers of ego and protection and delusion that separate us from life and from each other. We tend to think that protectiveness is safety. But paradoxically, what we see is that opening is how we become strong and how we make peace with life as it is. And that's where we begin to take our refuge rather than in safety. We may even begin to welcome the challenges in our life and our practice as doorways to freedom. Our struggles tell us exactly where we need to grow. It's said that in the Tibetan tradition, there's a prayer that aspiring yogis say before they begin to meditate. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. Appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey. That's different than looking to be comfortable, looking to be blissed out. That's looking for freedom. Dukkha is our best teacher. It won't say no. (laughs) It won't go away just because we want it to go away. It certainly holds our attention. We have to learn to work with it. So we all have kind of our different um, challenges. Let me give a few examples. Working with these bodies, many of us have different health challenges. That's dukkha. How do we work with it? For me, health challenges have been tremendously useful in learning about freedom, suffering and freedom. I had a period a number of years ago where I suffered uh, from one of those nameless health problems with a lot of neurological problems and fatigue. And there were days when I didn't really know if I, you know, I could barely get through what I had to do. And my body was very, very uncomfortable. And then there were days that I was all right, but I never knew which days I was going to get. I didn't know which way this illness was going to go, whether it was going to get worse and worse or whether it was going to heal. It was a time of a lot of uncertainty. Would I have chosen that? Probably not. But I learned so much about freedom from practicing during that time. 
You know, when I would have the days where my body would feel really, really off, I would ask myself, how can I find peace right now? Sometimes I would say, if, if it stays this way for the rest of my life, where is freedom? Now, how can I work with this in a way that I can be free? It was a fire. I was very motivated. Suffering motivates us. Times in our life when all is well and calm, we can get very lackadaisical about practice. When we're suffering, we usually have much more interest and motivation. One of the reasons that the Buddha said that the human realm is such a good realm for practice is because there is enough suffering to keep us interested and motivated. Now, there's many different realms of existence in the Buddhist cosmology, and um, there's all these heaven realms, but they said that the heaven realms aren't so great for practice because they're too pleasant. We're not motivated. I found that one quality, again, that makes dukkha so workable is interest. You know, can we get interested in our suffering? There was a time on retreat where I found um, this very useful. I was here at IMS a number of years ago, and a, f- a, number, a few months before I came on retreat, I'd broken up. Um, actually, he had broken up with me, which is an important part of the story. Um, Uh, Another yogi who was on retreat here had been my partner before, and he'd broken up with me a number of months before coming on retreat. And I was still kind of rather raw about it. Um, So one day I'm I'm, I'm, uh, going along my merry way practicing, and I see a note on the board. And I swear to God, it's his handwriting, and it's written to a woman. You know, her name's on the note. I know his handwriting, right? And I think the name is somebody that I might have heard that he was maybe getting into relationship with right when the retreat started. I would just go into tailspins. You know how it is. You're all, some, this is yogi mind. Some of you are already experiencing yogi mind. It's where a little bit of input goes, you know, really, like you, you just you take it and run. So I would start having all these, you know, the thoughts, oh, He's got a new girlfriend. He loves her. He doesn't love me. I'm unlovable. I'm so lonely. Oh, this is, you know, terrifying. You know, I would just, this whole, like, pattern of, um, of uh, thoughts and, and emotions would go through. And I suffered horribly, so I, I, I said to myself, you know what, I have to really, really look at this carefully because, it, you know, I'd kept, I'd see the note, I'd have the thoughts, I'd have the emotions, and it was like, just this whole chain reaction. So I'm like, I'm, I was really motivated to get interested in how thoughts and emotions worked. So I just, you know, repeatedly brought mindfulness to the thoughts, mindfulness to the emotions, how they felt, trying to be with them, and, the, you know, the way the practice teaches. It got so interesting. And eventually, it got to this point where I would see the image of the note, thought, thought, emotion, you know, and it would go, and it would all be over in three seconds. <laughs> just, but the same pattern, but just go right through it. I learned so much about emotions and how to work with them. 
the interesting kind of um, epilogue or, or, or um, moral to that story is after the retreat, I saw um, my, my friend and I said, did you write a note to such and such? He said, no, I didn't write any notes on this retreat. <laughs> That's yogi mind. <laughs> it was a good learning experience, so I still remember it. <clears throat> Another um, part of practice that's been so helpful for me are, is so um, much my teacher has been working with fear. You know, we all, we all have kind of our favorite hindrance, and fear has definitely been mine. And um, I've worked with it over many years. I'd say I have like 20 years of research in how to work with fear. I've become a real expert on it. And I've done that by becoming really intimate with fear. You know, understanding it really intimately. When we were on this retreat in Burma, um, the teacher gave a talk on ten different kinds of equanimity. I was pretty impressed with that. Um, and then I've also heard of a teacher who I believe talks about like twenty different kinds of silence. And I was I find that really impressive. So I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, well, what do I know a lot about that I could write about? You know, a number of different kinds of it. And I thought, fear. So I wrote a Dharma talk last spring on um, the 12 kinds of fear that I could distinguish in my life. And um, for each kind of fear, which particular aspect of mindfulness uh, seemed to heal it, seemed to work um, best in in, um, coming to terms with it. It was great fun. What can you write about the 12 kinds of This is what I mean, though, when we talk about really getting to know um, our suffering. It's like going out and meeting it. Some people might say, why bother? (laughs) What we see, though, is that with exploration, that our suffering loses its power over us. And we discover, again, this tenderness and compassion Below it, we find that we can embrace the whole catastrophe. And what we see is that it's a package deal. Life is a package deal. That when we open to suffering, we also open to joy and connectedness, peace and happiness. That you can't exactly just choose to have um, one side and not the other. That they come together with an openness to life. One of my heroes um, over the years has been a young woman who was who named uh, Eddie Hillisom, and she wrote a book called An Interrupted Life. She was a young, uh, a young woman in Amsterdam, young Jewish woman in Amsterdam in the early 1940s, and she wrote a diary of her last two years of her life before she was killed in a concentration camp. The reason why she's such a hero for me is she was in a situation, she was in an environment of tremendous suffering. You know, if you can imagine being in Amsterdam at the time when Hitler was um, in power and uh, she knew what was going on, she knew that her people were being exterminated and um, 
Her, her whole diary of her last two years of her life is about how to come to terms with suffering, you know, how to stay open in life in tremendous suffering. There's one quote by her that I really um, have found inspirational. She said, You must be able to bear your sorrow, even if it seems to crush you. You will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong. And your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on all Germans, for they too sorrow at this moment. Give your sorrow all the spacious shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. And if you have given sorrow the space it demands, then you may truly say, life is beautiful and so rich. She points to that kind of package and deal, that opening to sorrow, then you can say that life is so beautiful and rich. Opening to sorrow also opens us to connectedness and joy. So we use our suffering as a way to free ourselves. Again, Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering. The first is the suffering that causes more suffering, that we repeat over and over The second is the suffering that comes when we stop running. The second kind is the suffering that can lead to freedom. This is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So the kind of suffering that uh, we repeat over and over again that leads to more suffering is mindless suffering, suffering without awareness. The suffering that comes when we stop running and we pay attention is the suffering that can lead to freedom. Thomas Merton, the famous Christian mystic, said, if I am called to the solitary life, which is all of you at this moment, it does not necessarily mean I will suffer more acutely in solitude than anywhere else, but that I will suffer more effectively. I believe he's pointing in the same direction. So part of suffering effectively is to um, work with our dukkha at a reasonable speed. So it's not about trying to dig and um, uncover your your deepest suffering and um, and to always you know to have the focus of your practice to be to you know look and dig and try to. Um, make it all come up. You know, part of suffering effectively is to respect our process in opening, to respect our speed in opening, which for most of us is slower than we think is reasonable. <laughs> you know, when I look back over my practice over years, you know, there, there were periods where I felt like, you know, this is just not going fast enough. <laughs> and um, I felt like somehow I should be able to open faster, but when I look back at the wisdom 
with the wisdom of now, I see that um, everything has unfolded just at the right speed. It's like we need to, we build that trust in the process itself and don't need to hurry it or to make it happen. So engaging with suffering effectively means engaging with it with balance and with mindfulness as we're doing here. A lot of working with our suffering has to do with working with our reactivity. The Buddha said that um, we can't avoid pain in life, but we can avoid, or we can learn to work with the suffering of our reactivity to pain in life or reactivity to how life is. Sometimes it's uh, used the analogy of two arrows, that the first arrow is you know, the unpleasantness in life that will come our way whether we want it to or not, and um, the losing what we wish to keep will happen whether we like it or not. That's the first arrow. You can't avoid that one. But the second arrow is that reactivity of mind, the clinging and the pushing away, the grasping and the aversion, that that is a suffering that we can learn to work with. That's the optional suffering. So what we do in working with this kind of suffering is we look at our conditioned reaction to change in life. This is um, working with Vedana that Miyoshin explained a number of days ago. So we start to understand how we react to, to change, to life. We start to look at how when life is pleasant, when something pleasant is happening, we try to hold on. And we see the tension and the suffering that's there in that holding on. And we see that when it's unpleasant, we try to push it away. And we see the pain and suffering that comes from all our different forms of pushing away. So we get intimate with how we push away through judgment and aversion and fear, anger. And we start to get familiar with how we cling through wanting and lusting, desire, craving. This is the suffering, the dukkha, that we have to understand deeply if we wish to become free. And as we work with this kind of suffering, over and over we decondition these habitual ways of reacting to change. We find that we slowly develop more equanimity and ability to be with life as it is, as it changes. We begin to understand that life includes joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, fortune and misfortune, and are able to flow with the river of life as it changes. This is put rather um, humorously in a Zen story that I found. Walter Norwick liked to tell his Zen students the tale of a New Year's Eve when a knock came at the front door and the attendees opened it to the guest of honor, fortune dressed in all of his finery. After all the celebrating had died down, however, someone heard a faint scratching sound coming from the back door. 
They opened it, and a scrawny, filthy creature entered the room, bringing the festivities to a standstill. Who are you? Someone finally asked. Misfortune, croaked the creature, then pointed to the guest of honor. Where he goes, I follow. Did we think we could just get fortune? The Buddha said, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. This is what we're trying to learn. How we can make peace with life and all of its constant change. So when we talk about working with these conditioned reactions to change, to our grasping and aversion, you can uh, work with this here in the practice in many different ways. It might be a knee pain. You know, how do you work with a knee pain? It might be loneliness. It might be a fantasy that grabs you over and over again. You know, how do we work with pleasant and unpleasant circumstances as it comes up for us in practice over and over And you work with whatever comes up. It's not about trying to pretend that something's coming up that's not. So maybe what's coming up is resistance to your suffering. Maybe there's aversion to contacting it at all. That's okay. Then you can be with that aversion. Or maybe it's numbness. Maybe you don't feel anything. That's okay. Can you learn to be with numbness? So we start exactly where we are. Sometimes we forget that. We feel like we should be somewhere else, that somehow um, whatever is coming up isn't enough. It isn't right. It's actually whatever it is. That's, that's where we work. And sometimes we have to work long and hard over years with certain conditioned patterns that are very deep, deeply conditioned, for example, me working with fear. You know, sometimes we have to just keep poking holes into that fabric of fear till we can see through it. It can take years. And then sometimes um, some things are sometimes it's faster and easier in a moment, just an ordinary moment of a yogi day, we'll see, we'll understand our conditioning, we'll see through it. If we get too serious, then it's time to lighten up a little bit. Um, when I was practicing in Burma at last February, I had certain health problems happen here and there, and I would notice that sometimes I would start getting caught up in thoughts about them. So what I did uh, to kind of help break that pattern is there's this song I would sing to myself that was popular around that time. It was like, we go, trouble, 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 worry, 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 worry. This is how the song would go. So I would sing it to, to myself, you know, just, it was like, look at this drama that you're creating, you know, and it lightened it up. It would help um, me not get so lost and identified with it. You know, it's not a conventional way to practice, but it worked very well. You know, so sometimes we have to find unconventional ways. If we have something that just keeps grabbing us, find un- unconventional ways to, to um, 
let it go. So perhaps you have certain like tapes that you repeat over and over again. Maybe you can give them a funny name. Or you can say, oh, tape number one. That's tape number one. You know, maybe you have your top three. Oh, it's tape number one again. Now tape number two again. You don't have to be super serious. Maybe if you find numbness is what you're working with, you can call yourself the ice queen. Well, find, find some way to um, bring some air around these things. It's all workable. You know, that's what practice says. It's all workable. So we develop um, some sense of interest and um, lightness. Over time, what we find is that our suffering doesn't uh, fool us so much anymore. We don't um, believe it. We don't get lost in it. And that we can develop a certain sense of lightness with it. We can see the absurdity of the human mind. I mean, most of it, you know, like, if we just really step back and look at it, the mind is a little crazy. It's a little absurd. (laughs) You know, can we just appreciate that? So retreat is, um, I heard uh, one teacher call it controlled suffering. And um, sometimes it doesn't actually seem that controlled. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes it's a little bit more like a pressure cooker. And uh, you guys are starting to heat up a little bit. And what what people find um, with this, you know, the heating up, the pressure cooker, is that um, what we need to work with can and often does come to the fore. And so we'll have periods where there's, there is a lot of dukkha, you know. I, I think uh, Joseph called them work days, you know. Dukkha, dukkha periods. And sometimes we think, oh, well, during a dukkha, you know, if a lot of dukkha is coming up, that, that my practice is bad, I'm not doing it right. You know, we consider those periods bad practice. But they're not. They're your chance to develop freedom. And then as we learn to work with what comes up, we often go through periods where it's more peaceful. There's more equanimity. It flows, what Joseph calls reward days. And then what happens? Another level of dukkha, usually, for a lot of people. And we learn how to come to balance with that, more equanimity. It's kind of a spiral. So it's natural to have these periods set of um, these changing periods in practice and not to judge ourselves if that's happening. When, it, when, we, when there's more dukkha to say, okay, now my practice is bad. And when there's more equanimity, now my practice is good. It's all a whole. It all works together. And the dukkha just means that we're opening more and we're learning how to work with life as it is. So mindfulness gives us hope. Without mindfulness, we just perpetuate our old patterns of suffering. But with mindfulness, we can cultivate the wisdom that allows us to learn freedom, to develop freedom. Practice uh, gives us the tools to suffer effectively. It's a tried and true method. This method has been um, in place for 2,500 or 600 years. 
And we build confidence through working with our dukkha. You know, we get, build confidence by working outside of our comfort zone. Stretching our limits helps us discover our inner strength. We often think that practice is about getting comfortable. But I think it's about seeing what makes us uncomfortable and learning how to work with that. And not trying to get rid of our dukkha, but trying to understand it, get intimate with it and understand it. One of um, my favorite Zen teachers is Charlotte, Charlotte Joko Beck. Again, I like these teachers that just put it straight out, just as it is. Very frank, very um, sometimes demanding teachers, but very frank. She says, What is created, what grows, is the amount of life I can hold without it upsetting me, dominating me. At first, this space is quite restricted. Then it's a bit bigger, and then it's bigger still. It need never cease to grow. And the enlightened state is that enormous and compassionate space. But as long as we live, we find there is a limit to our container size, and it is at that point we must practice. And how do you know where this cutoff point is? We are at that point when we feel any degree of upset. It's no mystery at all. And the strength of our practice is how big that container gets. So as we work with our dukkha, we see that um, the size of the container gets larger and larger, more spaciousness, more compassionate awareness. And we find that we begin to develop our faith in our ability to deal with life as it is. We begin to trust our own basic stability. It's a precious and dependable gift that gives us the courage to open to life and to deeper wisdom. So even if you're struggling through a work day, trying to connect with what this path is about, about awakening to life and to joy and to freedom. I'd like to end on a happier note, perhaps, <laughs> um, by, by reading a poem by Shantideva, the uh, mystic poet called The Miracle of Awakening. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustpin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, 
the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's sit for a few moments. your dukkha teach you about freedom. 